0: It's Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Welcome, one and all. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. GuyBensonShow.com online. Many ways to listen live. And then there's the podcast, which is free each and every day. I'm broadcasting live from New York City, Fox News headquarters. Back up here for the second time in two weeks. Always happy to be with my friends and my colleagues and in the Big Apple. I'm on Greg Gutfeld's show tonight. Gutfeld! 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News. I will see you there. Here on the radio, here's the lineup. U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican, Florida, joins me in the next segment. The following segment will feature Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican, Texas. A lot to get to in our middle hour. It will not be all Afghanistan today because there's other news as well. We're going to squeeze as much in as we can. Charles C.W. Cook in our final hour will come back to the issue of Afghanistan. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Stats on COVID, and we will revisit COVID in our middle hour. The case count in the United States, cumulatively during the pandemic, 36.9 million and counting. A vast undercount, but that's the official number. The death toll now here in America. From coronavirus, 622,244. The Dow is down 330 points right now to 35,294. Well, I'll be candid and transparent with you. Coming up on the train today, we had our phone call that we always have to plan the show, and I had a few ideas about an opening monologue, some issues out of Afghanistan. That I wanted to particularly focus on going back to the president's speech that we played yesterday. We got a lot of it live over the air. We took that as we could. And then I reacted. I wrote a lengthy summary of my thoughts and analysis at townhall.com today. Called Biden's disgraceful speech. And it was about what he didn't really address and the deflection that he attempted away from. The disaster over which he is presiding and instead trying to focus on the rationale behind the policy decision in general. And that is an abdication. That is an evasion. You don't necessarily have to sell a lot of Americans on the idea that getting out of Afghanistan is the right thing to do, although the numbers are shifting. Because of how badly this is going, we've seen polling data just in the last 24 hours, support for withdrawal has cratered because of what the American people are seeing and recoiling in horror. The case for why we have to get out is a case that could have, should have, and in many cases was made by the previous president, Donald Trump, and by the current president back when it was announced in the spring. What needs to be done now ...is an accounting for what an incompetent, inept fiasco this is. And Biden more or less sidestepped that completely. And he didn't take any questions because I think he knew taking questions would not go well. And this is what I was about to say at the very top. On our planning call for the show today, I had a bit of a game plan about the opening monologue. That went out the window... After I watched the press conference at the White House today, the president himself is nowhere to be found. He's off at Camp David. He flew back, gave that speech, and choppered back over to the vacation spot. So today at the briefing, we saw Jen Psaki circle back, was back from vacation. I think she might be back early from her vacation. And then Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, he took the bulk of the questions. And watching the things that he was forced to say in response to questions, it is obvious why the president of the United States and his team surrounding him wanted no part of that with the president on screen. Because there are no good answers. None. Let me read to you this. I'll get some sound bites in from what we just heard. The whole plan went out the window. I want to talk about what we just saw. Now the State Department's having their briefing. So Ned Price, their spokesman, he's out for his round of punishment. The White House briefing was just extraordinary. But here is what CBS News reported just a short while ago. Their reporter Sarah Cook says, The note below went out this afternoon to American citizens requesting to be evacuated from Afghanistan. I'll just read this to you. This is from the Biden administration, to American citizens in Afghanistan who are trapped in one out. Per CBS News, quote, to American citizens, thank you for registering your request to be evacuated from Afghanistan. The U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan has confirmed that an undefined number of U.S. government provided flights will begin soon. Please make your way to Hamid Karzai International Airport at this time. And now in bold and all caps, please be advised that the United States government cannot guarantee your security as you make this trip. This reads like you've called, like, the customer service line for your mattress company. Thank you for calling. We appreciate your call. Your call is very important to us. Thank you for registering to be evacuated from Afghanistan. Para Español, a primo numero dos. Like, that is what this feels like. And I have to make a joke because otherwise it's just too depressing. That is what our government just sent the thousands of Americans trying to get the hell out of this place. Because it has descended into Taliban controlled chaos foreseeably. New York Times and others reporting that the intelligence community warned the Biden administration that they gave them new intelligence. This could happen. And the geniuses at the very top, especially the president, decided now we're going to go ahead while assuring everyone just a few weeks ago, oh, it's highly unlikely. The country's not going to collapse. It's going to be okay. We're staying. Our embassy's staying. Our diplomatic effort's going to be strong. The predictions are astoundingly foolish in very short order. I mean, the retrospect is not looking too far back. We're talking July. We played some of those clips yesterday. So that's the message that Americans are getting because there are, government did not even have the basic competence and decency to have a withdrawal plan in place. So now they're on some list where they get an email and their advice is, hey, yeah, try to get to the airport. We can't guarantee your safety. Good luck. So at the press briefing today, in cut 25, the national security advisor for President Biden said this.
1: What you can do is plan for all contingencies. We did that. The American forces now on the ground at Kaya are there because of contingency planning and drilling we did over the course of months.
0: <laughs> I, I, I cannot believe that we are hearing from the White House. We heard it from the president yesterday, too. This boasting that they planned for every contingency. No, they didn't. Because the contingency that's happening now, reality, was obviously not planned for. Obviously. There's not even a semblance of an orderly plan in place. It is panicked, fly by the seat of your pants, try not to get killed. That is the plan. And yet with a straight face, we, what we can do is plan for every contingency, which is what we did. B.S., Stop lying. And by the way, if you actually did plan for all the contingencies, you did a piss poor job of it. If you had this contingency in your on the on the board. Then what? What does that say about you and your preparedness and carrying out the contingency plan? I'm just astounded that this is one of the lines that they're going with. Sullivan was then asked about getting Americans, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people who helped us, who deserve our assistance to get out of that country and avoid death at the hands of the Taliban, a terrorist organization. But just talking about Americans, American citizens, can they guarantee those Americans are going to get out of Afghanistan alive, safely? Here's Sullivan Cut 26.
1: That mission is not complete by August 31st, and there are Americans and Afghan allies who remain there. Will U.S. troops stay until everyone is out, or will they leave? So I'm not going to comment on hypotheticals. What I'm going to do is stay focused on the task at hand, which is getting as many people out as rapidly as possible. And we will take that day by day.
0: So that is not a commitment in case you were keeping score at home. Jen Psaki, back from the abortive vacation, she returned. Similar question, similar answer, cut 27.
1: Can you offer any guarantee to the Americans
3: and Afghan allies that if they remain there past the end of the month, U.S. troops will help them evacuate past the end of the month. Asia, our, our focus right now is on uh, doing the work at hand and on the task at hand, and that is day by day getting as many American citizens, as many SIV applicants, as That's, many members of answer. a vulnerable population who are eligible to be evacuated to the airport and out on planes. Uh, and we're going to do that in expeditious fashion. That is the focus of the President, of our Secretary of Defense, of our Secretary of, of State, uh, and everybody on our national security team. Uh, okay, so we're, that-
0: we're taking it day by day, that is the opposite of a plan. Right? If they had examined every contingency and, you know, we got this. They obviously don't got this. Because they can say in one breath, we plan for every contingency. And it's like, hey, can you guarantee that our people will be there to help Americans get out? And they won't answer the question. They say, well, really, I mean, the task at hand is being taken day by day. It is self-contradicting talking points. That's what we're watching here. Absolute failure. Absolute failure. And they're trying to convince us that it's something other than that. And we're not idiots. Last point that we learned today from this press conference at the White House They were asked, has President Biden spoken with any other world leaders about this situation as it's unfolding? Answer, no. What the hell is he doing? Sitting at Camp David, watching on a screen. Then they put him in the helicopter, fly him back over to read off a teleprompter, take no questions and head back. He hasn't spoken to the Brits, the Germans. Leaders in the region, no one? They said, no, he hasn't spoken to anyone, any other world leader. This has been happening for days. It's not just America. This has been a coalition for years. What the hell is the president doing? Every contingency, they say. What a disgrace. We got to run. Senator Rick Scott coming up next
2: the guy benson show more next from the fox news Podcasts network
1: i'm janice dean fox news senior meteorologist be sure to subscribe to the janice dean podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts and don't forget to spread the sunshine
2: from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. With me now is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. He is the NRSC chairman. Senator, good to have you back. I saw you're getting some headlines generating some headlines about your comments sort of musing about whether President Biden is fit for office and your mention at least of the twenty fifth amendment was that a serious concern that you were raising what what caused you to invoke or mention the twenty fifth amendment?
4: Well, first off, what we're seeing in Afghanistan is devastating. Um, and it clearly could have been avoided if Joe Biden had been prepared. He's been on vacation since he got elected. I um, mean, if you look at every issue going on, border crisis, Cuba, Israel, Iran, uh, inflation, now Afghanistan, he's nowhere to be seen. So I think it's a fair and serious question is that we have to confront. And, and you know, we got to protect American Americans, and then we have to protect national security. Where in the living daylights is Joe Biden? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he doing his job? I mean, he ran to be the president of the United States, act like the president of the United States, do your job.
0: He took no questions yesterday after giving a speech of which I was very critical. Uh, He's leaving it, I guess, to his underlings to take the tough questions on really an indefensible series of decisions. We also learned today at the White House briefing that he has not spoken to a single other world leader over the course of this collapse in Afghanistan. That, to me, is pretty shocking.
4: Um, Look, we we need to know. We we've got to have a a bipartisan bicameral investigation to exactly what happened here. Um, but he is out to lunch. He is not doing his job. He's nowhere to be seen. I mean, I mean nothing. None of these crises was he is he doing anything? So who who's running the place and what are they doing? So I, I want to get. To, I, we've got to get to the bottom of this. This is we cannot go on like this. We've got. We've got China that wants to do bad things to us, Iran. I mean, we've got to get somebody in there that's going to do their
0: job. Senator, we often talk about China when you come on this show, and it kind of feels almost like a sidebar when we're discussing this calamity in Afghanistan to go over into the China realm. However, the Chinese Communist Party and their propaganda media outlets are really relishing what they're seeing they are watching this collapse in Afghanistan and they are turning it into propaganda that they are directing specifically at Taiwan and Hong Kong saying look at what the Americans are doing in Afghanistan whatever they tell you about support for democracy or having your back don't believe them it's actually pretty scary because it's clear that Beijing is emboldened by what they're seeing and I'm I'm more fearful about Taiwan than I have been in the recent past.
4: You should be. First off, every American citizen, every American company should stop doing any business with communist China. They are not our friend. They are not an ally. They want to dominate us, and we have got to start standing up for our allies. For you know, for the for the, for Biden and and Sullivan to go out and trash the the Afghani's. I mean, you don't trash people that, that served with you. You don't trash people that that are putting their lives on the line for freedom. And that's exactly what they're doing. And, and if I was the Taiwanese, I'd be furious with the Biden administration. I'm furious with them, with the Biden administration. How, how dare you go attack an ally that fought with us? And that's exactly what they're doing.
0: Right, he's basically saying, not basically, he's explicitly saying that the Afghan military didn't have the heart didn't have the honor to fight tens of thousands of them have died while fighting the taliban and that's sort of his parting kiss off to these right. to yeah. these forces and to the people of afghanistan it's it's breathtaking senator last word They
4: afghanis want to live in freedom all right. And none of us want to be on a forever war, but this is despicable what Joe Biden did and his entire administration. We need to have a thorough investigation.
0: U.S. Senator Rick Scott, he's the chairman of the NRSC. And, Senator, next time you're back, I want to ask you about the 22 election cycle and some of the recruits. I say there's some big news out of Nevada today. You're trying to get a few more candidates potentially on the board elsewhere. Uh, But today the focus is Afghanistan, foreign policy. We can get to politics next time. How about that?
4: Sounds good, Guy. Have a great day.
0: Senator Rick Scott on The Guy Benson Show. And the thing is, He's right. The forever war is not appealing to almost any American. There's a debate that has been raging in this country now for years if to get out, when to get out, what does that look like? Is there a residual force? These are fair discussions to have.
2: The.
0: Focus now is how on earth was this done so terribly? I can't imagine how they could have done it worse. And yet they tell us they plan for every contingency. What a damning self-assessment
2: from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers
1: out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast.
2: Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
0: Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show from New York City today. Glad to have you along. Joining us now is Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. He's a former Navy SEAL. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was wounded and lost his eye in Afghanistan in 2012. Congressman, it is good to have you back on the show.
3: It was great to be with you, Guy.
0: Before I get into Afghanistan and policy and politics... You were very public in recent months about sort of a scary situation involving your vision of your remaining eye. How are you?
3: I'm good. I'm back to my normal. My normal is very complicated, but uh, it's it's, it's a fine place to be, and I'm pretty lucky.
0: Okay, I'm glad to hear that, because I know a lot of people were pulling for you and praying for you. Let's talk about Afghanistan and what's happening. My intention coming into the show is to ask you about the president's speech yesterday, at some length, but that's almost been preempted now by the most recent series of comments coming from the White House. The National Security Advisor briefed the press earlier from the West Wing. The president is back on vacation, it seems. Jake Sullivan, among other things, said this in Cut 25. I want to get your reaction.
1: What you can do is plan for all contingencies. We did that. The American forces now on the ground at HKIA are there because of contingency planning and drilling we did over the course of months.
0: And then in Cut 26, he was asked a pretty straightforward question about the U.S. government's commitment to getting Americans, all Americans, out of Afghanistan. And it was a non-committal response. Listen.
1: The mission is bright. not complete by August
3: 31st, and there are Americans and Afghan allies who remain there.
1: Will U.S. troops stay until everyone is
3: out, or will they leave?
1: So I'm not going to comment on hypotheticals. What I'm going to do is stay focused on the task at hand, which is getting as many people out as rapidly as possible, and we will take that day by day.
0: Taking it day by day, not responding to hypotheticals, and saying every contingency was planned for. That is the line from the White House, Congressman your reaction well first
3: of all it's not a hypothetical that that's just the situation right, right. and so like it's not a hypothetical guys uh, you have to answer that question you know the, the irony of all this is we've doubled our troop presence like the whole point was bring the troops home right because that makes us feel good but nice slogan works really well on a bumper sticker in reality this is always going to happen when we did that and i want everybody to know that and um we have to ask ourselves a very simple question do you like this outcome better than what we had even just a few weeks ago? A very small presence, no combat casualties in 18 months? Does that sound like an endless war? Or does it sound like a security contingent? Does it sound like a residual force uh, that is partnering with our Afghan partners and preventing a terrorist safe haven from occurring at a pretty low cost? You know, I'm still blown away by how we've come to think about what what our actions are there. And these contingency plans, if, if these guys want a round of applause, because they had a QRF on standby, a quick, quick reaction force. Well, they're, they're going to be waiting a long time for that applause. I mean, they can go to hell. They, they, have, they have screwed this up so badly. They have screwed this up so badly. There, there's a lot of ways they could have improved it. Right? Just having a plan for those contractors and, and Afghan interpreters that I've been talking about for months, and that's a bipartisan concern that's been going on for months, and they dragged their feet on that, you know, and but but as it turns out, it's much worse than that. They didn't have a plan for them. They didn't have a plan for U.S. citizens. They didn't have a plan for our embassy. That U.S. ambassador was actually requesting to be flown out before all of his embassy staff were were evacuated. I don't think a lot of people know that the State Department has has screwed that up so it just to to, to a degree that it's, it's unfathomable. Well, it's except really
0: a, and Congressman, we played the sound bites yesterday. It was just a few weeks ago that the president and the secretary of state were saying, no, this is not going to happen. The Taliban is not going to take this country over. If it does happen, it's going to be very gradual. It wouldn't happen over the course of a weekend. The likelihood of that takeover is extremely low. Blinken was saying we're going to have our embassy. We're going to have our diplomats there. We're going to have a robust presence. That was just a few weeks ago. And now they are with a straight face expecting us to believe, oh, yes, they they had a contingency plan for all of this. And we're just, you know, in the process of, I guess, watching them carry out those contingencies with emails. We read from an email that CBS News reported that it's being sent to U.S. citizens stuck in Afghanistan saying, thank you for registering to be evacuated. Please try to get to the airport. We can't guarantee your safety. That is what they're telling American citizens. But they're telling us. From the press conference, you know, from from the podium, we have all these contingencies uh, planned for it, it. It makes no sense. It's insulting.
3: No, they they have they have no contingencies whatsoever. You bring up a good point about the about their denial of the intel that they had, and uh, you're seeing more and more reports coming out from the intelligence community that look, Biden and his advisors were told what would happen that Taliban would take over. And I think I think the the agreed upon estimates were between two months and six months, and it ended up between, you know, two days was was the actual answer. But it, in any case, it was obvious what would happen. It was obvious what your actions would cause. And, and, and the fact that, that there's no adults in the room, the fact that these people thought that that outcome would somehow be superior to the, the previous status quo, is absolutely insane. And I've been saying this over and over again.
4: We were captured, our foreign
3: policy was captured by emotional slogans of bring the troops home. We got to stop, we, and, you know, that that is derived from a, a sense of wishful thinking, right? People who, people who have been advocating for that, they want to live in a reality that doesn't exist.
0: And that's both parties, the way.
3: 100%. And they want to live in a reality that doesn't exist, where, where you can have your cake and eat it too, where you can have zero troop presence, but also have security and peace of mind and a denial of a terrorist safe haven. They'll even make silly things up like, well, we'll just do these sort of long-term or, or, or long-range missions and surgical inserts, you know, to keep them at bay. I'm sorry, that's not how the military works. It's impossible, especially in a landlocked country. You need to be forward deployed. And again, we had a minimal force there. You know, as Americans, we, and again, both parties did this, everybody equated nation building with... A residual security force. And these two things are not the same. I think I think most Americans agree that nation building in a place like Afghanistan is, is a waste of blood and treasure. But we did find a balance in the last few years, an equilibrium that both kept Americans safe at home, kept terrorism at bay, and didn't cost us a whole lot. Well, and you and we said that there
0: were, that and just to highlight something that you said, you said there have been no U.S. combat casualties in Afghanistan for the last year and a half, which I think is... Probably surprising to a lot of Americans who hear the phrase like forever war and assume that we have tens of thousands of men and women over there, significant numbers of whom are dying on a regular basis. That was horrifically the case for a long time. But more recently, that equilibrium that you described was preventing that, but also preventing a terrorist organization. From taking over the country. And now there's all this jihadist chatter. About using Afghanistan. As a base for terrorism again. It's like we've seen this movie before congressman. And it ended horrifically. For the United States of America. One piece of this I want to ask you about. Because there's the question of whether or not. We should have withdrawn completely. And there are different sides to that debate. A lot of Americans were on the yes side of that. You were more on the no side of that. For the reasons that you've just laid out. Then there's the issue of how to withdraw once the decision has been made. This is where I don't think you can possibly deny the abject failure of the Biden administration. It's it's just been stunning. It's been stunning to watch. And one element of it that I've never understood, not that I'm an expert on these matters at all, but it was last month that we handed off a Bagram Air Base to a military that clearly collapsed when they didn't have some of the support that we had been giving them for a long time. It seems like a single airport and a single runway is becoming this huge focal point as we are desperately, in a panicked way, trying to get people out of the country. Among many other things that could have been done differently, why the hell wouldn't you maintain an airbase for the purpose of evacuation if it came to that, if you were indeed you know, uh, operating with all these contingency plans in place. Instead, they just turned the keys over in the dead of night last month.
4: Yeah. And there's
3: a lot to impact there. I mean, the reason why fundamentally is because they were relying on bumper sticker slogans for their policy. You know, it, it, you can't fit in. Well, we're still going to have an air base and all the personnel associated with it. You can't fit that into the bring the troops home slogan. And that's how they think they're, they're thinking in emotional sloganeering terms. You know, and by the way, when you ask most Americans a more nuanced question on this, should we keep a residual security force, uh, you know, just in case, then you start getting a majority saying yes. That's
1: so Americans right. do true. have a
3: more nuanced approach and realize that it's not so black and white as, as bring the troops home or, or endless wars and nation building, right? There, there's a lot in between that. There's a lot of complexity to this that... Our leaders for for two decades now have completely failed to communicate this to the American people Um, on on both sides. It's been very frustrating to watch.
0: Congressman, on MSNBC yesterday, there was a panel, and unsurprisingly, you had a lot of people gushing over the president's speech, which I thought was actually a pretty disgraceful speech for reasons that I've written about today at townhall.com. Nicole Wallace, uh, one of their... News anchors, I guess if you can call her that, said that 95 percent of Americans would agree with the speech. One of the guests that they brought on later in the programming was a guy named Matt Zeller from a group called No One Left Behind. He's also an Army veteran. And to their credit, they had him on. And Brian Williams asked him a question. He responded to it. Cut 17. I want to get your response to this.
4: I'm curious to hear your reaction of this consequential speech by the American president didn't run from it. He owned it. He owned his decision. He owned the fact that, as he put it, the buck stops
1: with him. I hope he gets to own their deaths, too. I, I don't I feel like I watched a different speech than the rest of you guys. I was appalled. There was such a profound, bold faced lie in that speech. The idea that we plan for every contingency. We sent them plan
0: after plan on how to evacuate these people. Nobody listened to us. They didn't plan for the evacuation of our Afghan wartime allies. They're trying to conduct it now at the 11th hour. The thing that they were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation. Congressman, you can hear the passion in his voice, and they're sort of trying to pretend, and, and these are not arguments that can stand, at the same time, they're trying to pretend that they had this thing planned and had all these contingency plans in place, but also didn't see this coming and it happened much more quickly than they were expecting. Th- those are sort of mutually exclusive things, but they're kind of grasping onto anything they can right now at the White House.
3: Yeah, the play the game they're engaging in is, is disgraceful. I, I watched that clip uh, went pretty viral on the Internet and for good reason. And he's exactly right. I mean, I don't know how you can interpret Biden's actions as anything but disgraceful. And in blaming the, the Afghan army, um, it, it, that's particularly disgraceful. They, they, they've sacrificed tens of thousands of troops. We've, we've lost about 100 troops in the last five years. They've lost tens of thousands. And it, it, nobody, nobody remembers that. And they also look—they they rely on our logistics. They rely on our air power. They're a 20 year old country. And this notion that they're supposed to be this uh, dominating force that can deal with something like the Taliban, which hides amongst civilians and plays by no rules whatsoever. That's an absurd notion, you know, and, and they need some sense of morale. And when we say we're leaving over and over and over again for years, we've been saying it, you know, because, hey, no more and less wars. Well, what does that do? It, it removes morale from our Afghan partners and delivers morale to the Taliban. The Taliban, all that now they know, Because we've told them that all they have to do is wait it out. And newsflash to our policymakers, I don't know why we keep making this mistake, you don't have to tell them. You don't have to set deadlines. And by the way, if you do set a deadline, do not insult the American people by making it on September 11th. That was another just disgusting cell phone by the the Biden administration. I I really cannot believe they did that. I can't believe anybody advised them to do that. Uh, Probably the same people who advised them to do that ridiculous video in the White House with that TikTok influencer. But... You know, that's neither here nor there. It's um, it, it's shameful. Yeah, that it was just a few so days no ago. Maybe he
0: was running yeah. the show while they were contingency planning for Afghanistan. Perhaps that was what was happening. I want to ask the last question here before we let you go, Congressman. We have seen some voices on the right, including some folks that we often agree with, saying maybe we shouldn't bring. The people in Afghanistan who helped us and risked their lives to help us for many years. Maybe we shouldn't bring them back to the United States because of demographics issues. And this is a form of immigration invasion. We've seen this argument now being made uh, from some pretty significant platforms. What What is your reaction when you hear that type of argument, sort of turning this into an immigration issue? And what do you make of those who say, on this issue at least... We don't owe it to these people to bring them to the United
1: States.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure who they're talking about. I, 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 there's, there's different categories of people. Are, are we talking about every civilian that wants to come? Um, because I, I, that might no. be what they're responding to. Um, if they're just talking about you know the SIV applications, the thing that I've been beating the drum on for a couple months now, you know, our interpreters, our contractors, uh, people who we made promises to who are at true risk from from helping us, Yeah, we absolutely need to to help them get here and and help them get through the process. I mean, before all this disaster took place, the conversation was about getting them to a third country uh, quickly so that we could do the processing there and their families wouldn't be hunted down and killed. I mean, these interpreters are extremely brave people. I mean, the guy who died in front of me as I got blown up was an interpreter. And uh, just to say that these, these people don't deserve to, to be in America is insane and heartless. And it, look, let's just be honest. A lot of people out on our side that have no understanding of why we were there, what's going on, anything about it. They make emotional arguments just like Biden does. Uh, let's just be perfectly honest about that. It, it, it's been a problem on, on both sides. And it's because our leadership never communicated clearly what this was all about to the American people. I've been trying to do that for years. You know, there's division on the right um, with, the, with this conversation. And um, oh, oh, I mean, and this is how it gets. This is where it gets us. This yeah. is where it gets us, that kind of wishful thinking.
0: Well, I can hear the frustration in your voice. And I think a lot of people are disgusted and frustrated watching what we're watching. Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. His book is Fortitude. He is a former Navy SEAL who spilled his blood in Afghanistan. And he's now watching what's happening. And, Congressman, we appreciate your time and your, uh, your insight and your perspective here because people need to hear it. Thanks for joining us.
2: Great to be with you, Guy. Thanks.
0: Congressman Crenshaw on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Guy Benson will be right back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
0: I'm Guy Benson. Deseret News has interviewed some people trapped in Afghanistan. This is someone, an Afghan citizen, we believe, who helped the United States there for 10 years. Here's what he says, quote, I'm hiding with my two children. We are scared, frightened and threatened behind the door. Every other country helped their allies, Canada, the UK, everyone. But the only country, the superpower that failed to help their allies survive is the United States of America. I begged, I shouted, I asked, I told everyone. The U.S. government has all our data. Now we are disconnected with the world. We are trapped here, and the Taliban is chasing everyone. They are occupying properties. They are taking vehicles from people's houses. They are searching for people, and they're taking people outside and executing them. I'm a very proud American. It's hard to be proud of this. It's impossible to be proud of this. Every contingency, they say, they had planned. This is just one example that puts the lie to that claim. Another hour of the Guy Benson show coming up.
1: Jason in the House, the
3: Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on Foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. <laughs>
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
0: Welcome to our second of three hours on The Guy Benson Show, live from New York today, tomorrow, and Thursday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. You can catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be on for the full hour with the whole crew. That is on Fox News Channel, of course. Let's bring you a Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down 282 points, so off the session low, but still down, ending the day at 35,343. Well, we now interrupt our depressing Afghanistan news to bring you More news on the global pandemic. Hasn't this just been a a cheerful news cycle or three? Because obviously Afghanistan is very important. COVID remains the number one story in the world. Although I think that there are very serious implications in terms of American prestige, American honor, American trustworthiness that will echo for a long time out of Afghanistan. It's not just a quick news story even though I predict it will recede from the headlines rather quickly because almost everything does. But we can't forget this moment. In fact, before I get to COVID, just a thought. What we are seeing under the Biden administration and what I think Republicans would be wise to do as they think about 2022 and beyond, 24 is become the opponents of wokeness and weakness. What we are seeing is wokeness and weakness. And I think a lot of Americans are pretty disgusted by both. And we will discuss more about the woke side of things coming up later this hour with a little... Woke Tales update or two. So stay tuned for that. Let's get to covid because there is some significant news on this front. New York Times reporting late last night, quote. The Biden administration has decided that most Americans should get a coronavirus booster vaccination eight months after they received their second shot and could begin offering third shots as early as mid-September. Officials envision giving people the same vaccine they originally received. So this would be a top off a third shot, which now the Biden administration says they're going to be recommending for most people. They've already seen the FDA approve it for a few million immunocompromised people. I think next in line will be elderly people and senior citizens. But. What the guidance is going to be, it appears, is that almost all of us who are fully vaccinated are going to become sort of not fully vaccinated until you get your third shot with this booster shot. Why? Well, the data out of Israel is telling the story. And Israel has started with the booster shots. The U.K. and the Germans, they're moving forward as well. I mean, as soon as a few other countries started green lighting this, it was only a matter of time. Uh, Before we did as well, because the U.S. government has enough doses on hand for everyone to get a third shot. Now, there are a few concerns or qualms that I have about this, and I'll get to those in just a second. But for now, the data out of Israel shows that after a period of time, the protection of these vaccines starts to wane. And the prevalence of the Delta variant, which is just so much more transmissible and contagious, it has made this, I think, a more serious threat in a place like Israel, which was a world leader in vaccination. And yet they're seeing a pretty significant spike in cases because people who are immunocompromised and older in particular are starting to get cases. Now, the vaccines are still very protective against severe illness and death. For almost all people, but the severe illness risk is going up as the protection of the vaccine wanes among especially older people or vulnerable people in Israel. So their government decided we are going to start giving third shots to boost up that immunity. Reading again from The New York Times, the latest Israeli data posted on the government's website on Monday shows what some experts described as continued erosion of the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine against mild or asymptomatic COVID-19 infections in general and against severe disease among the elderly who are vaccinated early in the year. Right, so that's, I basically already summarized that. When you look at what they've done, because they've already been, they're very efficient in Israel. They've already gotten a lot of their seniors or 60 plus people get their third shot in their arm. I think roughly half of those eligible in that age range already has the third shot, and we're seeing the numbers get a lot better. So the percentage in the last two weeks, so I'm going to read this is a, a tweet from someone who's following the Israeli data. Israel started administering a third dose to 60-year-old and above on July 30th. By now, over half of this age group has received a third dose. In the two weeks that passed, the relative fraction of cases of 60-year-olds plus who are vaccinated out of all the cases dropped from about 12 to 14% to 6%. So already you had a pretty small number of fully vaccinated older Israelis compared to the unvaccinated who made up the large majority of the new cases. But with the third shot going into arms within that group, that percentage of breakthrough cases has plummeted further, so it's working. I mean that that's, I think the upshot. Alapundit, a hot air, looks at a lot more data, and you can I link to his piece at Town Hall in a piece that I'm writing for tomorrow. But he goes through the data, looks at it, and it's very encouraging. Out of Israel, he says, "Quote: Ever since Israel started dosing out third shots." To older people a few weeks ago, the virus is spreading less among that group while it continues to spread among the unvaccinated. As for severe cases, the vaccine has been strong at prevention all along. So that's the experience that they have in Israel right now, and that is soon to be an experience here in the United States. Not just for the immunocompromised. Not just for older people. But for most Americans, that's the guidance that apparently we're going to get within the coming weeks. According to The New York Times, they've they've clearly, at Team Biden, started to leak this information. This is the direction that they're headed. The FDA has already approved this on a limited basis for some people. We've also seen, by the way, a CDC estimate that more than a million Americans have already gotten a booster shot. Well, how's that possible? They haven't been giving out booster shots yet. Well, there's no way to really keep track of it, right? If you are a J&J person, you got the one and done, and you want a booster shot of Pfizer or Moderna, you just show up at a pharmacy or any of these locations. You say, hey, um, I'd like a shot. And they would say, okay, have you been vaccinated yet? And you lie. Say no, and you get your shot. Now that goes on the books as a newly vaccinated person. What's actually happening is, you're getting a booster shot. And CDC thinks more than a million people here have already done that, which I do not recommend. All right, Unless your doctor has told you to do it, I think you should go through the proper channels. I don't think we should be lying on a, an issue like this. But people took it upon themselves to go ahead and do that in at least a million cases, it looks like already. Now the government is coming around and saying, all right, I think we're going to be doing this as a matter of policy. Let's start with vulnerable people. Let's start with elderly people and then expand it out to everyone else. And I'm not necessarily against it, but I do have some questions. Question number one, and you might say, well, guy, this is an awfully self-interested question. Okay, perhaps, perhaps guilty as charged, but I think it's a reasonable question and it applies to a hell of a lot of people. Do Americans who have been fully vaccinated – and who have gotten and recovered from COVID, do those people need a booster shot? Right. So I'm one of them. I had a breakthrough case. I got my two Moderna shots. Then I got COVID, which I talked about openly on the air here. It was a minor cold. It was actually very easy, but it was COVID. I recovered quickly. That's another infusion of antibodies and protection. It's natural immunity plus the immunity afforded by the vaccine. Do I need a booster shot eight months out from my second vaccination shot? Do I need a third even though I've had COVID? I feel like I've got all the antibodies. I've got sort of this superpower armor right now against COVID, and there's a fair amount of research that shows that either one of these things are pretty long-lasting. You add them together, are you going to be recommending booster shots even for people who have natural plus vaccine immunity? I don't know. I haven't seen a good answer to that or any answer to that. We're going to get a doctor on here in the next few days. I'll put I'll put the question to them. I don't know if they have an answer yet. Because I wonder how much good research there is there. What if you had covid before the vaccine? Right. So you were one of the people in that initial wave or two. We didn't have the vaccine. You got covid. You survived it. Then you got vaccinated. You're sort of in the same boat as I am, except in reverse. You got COVID first, then the vaccine. I got vaccine first, then COVID. You, you would have a lot of that protection, natural plus vaccine. Do you need a booster shot? I would like to know the answer to that. Are we going to really need booster shots ongoing, even for people who've gotten fully vaccinated and who have survived the disease? I don't know. That's one question that I have. Another question that I have about this goes to the optics and the persuasion of vaccine-hesitant people. If you're a vaccine-hesitant person, and thank God we've seen a lot of people coming off the fence in recent weeks, vaccine uptick has been significant. I think some of it is because people are seeing what's happening among the unvaccinated in hospitals across the country, especially in certain regions, although it's starting to move up in other regions as well. Seasonality might be coming into play. But people are seeing what's happening to unvaccinated folks and saying, I really want to avoid that. I'm going to go get vaccinated. I think that's a powerful motivator. But there are still an awful lot of people who are waiting and seeing, not sure, holding back, holding off. If you're one of those skeptical people, I just wonder if now you're being told it's not one shot, it's not two shots, it's now three shots especially if you're a relatively younger or lower risk person, is that going to be a barrier to entry, a further barrier to entry? Will that make you more skeptical, more hesitant? Because now you're saying it's a it's a bigger hill to climb. I, I don't happen to think getting a few shots is that big of a deal, but if you've waited this long, obviously your hesitancy is on a completely different plane than mine would have been. And I'm just not sure it's helpful to tell that group of people that were trying to get vaccinated for the first time, trying to get them to get their first shot and some protection to say, now it's going to be three. I get it for older people or for more vulnerable people. Making that a blanket policy as a recommendation, I don't know. I'm not totally sold on that. And I'd like to hear the medical advice from some doctors, just from a PR perspective And breaking through to fence sitters, which I think is still a very important priority in this process. By the way, some of the vaccine hesitant people have said, and this is in polling, there's data behind this, that they would be more inclined to get it if the FDA fully approves the vaccines. And the FDA said, oh, yeah, we think we're going to get around to that in the fall. Again, this is not my area of expertise. I'm not a public health regulator or a doctor, or anything like it, but just hear me out. The United States has administered over 350 million doses of this stuff into our citizens. 350 million doses have been administered in this country. What more would it take for the FDA to approve this? Honestly. Like they're saying, well, it's still it's still this emergency authorization. Okay, well, it's been enough of an emergency that you've said, go ahead, put it into basically the whole country. I don't know why you couldn't fast track final approval, given the fact that it's in most of us now and we can see the results and we've seen. Very low negative outcomes or side effects. That's just something that is bewildering to me. That's an aside. One last point on this before I break. This is more of a moral question. The World Health Organization is saying there should be a moratorium on Western or wealthy countries giving third shots to their citizens. They're saying this is not fair. So much of the world, I would guess billions of people, are not vaccinated at all. A lot of countries are struggling to get even single doses into folks. Should richer countries... Be giving top-ups, booster shots to part of their population when so much of the world population hasn't even had one shots, including a, or one shot, including many people who probably want them desperately. The counterpoint is, what if you're a country that developed the vaccine and got everything in place, and you have to take care of your people first? That's the purpose of a government. Are you calling on? For example, the United States government or the UK government or the Israeli government not to give an effective vaccine that is deemed to be necessary to vulnerable populations like elderly people in the third dose. You're asking them to withhold that and send those doses elsewhere. I mean, I understand the moral calculus here, and I I, I, there's a case to be made on both sides. I just think it's a very hard sell to tell a government withhold this stuff. From your own people. Anyway, this is uh, the headline again. Biden administration has decided reportedly that most Americans should get a booster vax. Three months after check that eight months after their second shot. And we will await further approval from FDA, but that's the direction they're headed. And I'm eager to talk to a doctor about some of this later in the week here on the Guy Benson show. We'll be right back.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say single-handedly save the world. You're
2: welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Woke Tales upcoming in the next segment. So I saw this headline. It was a Chiron. Martha McCallum was on the air in the last hour. So the, well, the graphic at the bottom of the screen on Fox News, quote, release Gitmo detainee among Taliban's leaders. So you've got this terrorist group that has taken over Afghanistan in a flash because we just fled the country and did so in such a discombobulated and derelict way that we didn't even get our own people out in a sensible fashion. A lot of them are stuck there. Taliban is going door to door in some cases and killing people while assuring people, oh, don't worry, you can go come back to work. You've got an amnesty. It's going to be fine. We're going to be good to women. Uh-huh. Sure. They're already breaking the promise. It's the Taliban. No one believes this. But one of the leaders now of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan and making it a terrorist state. Was released from Guantanamo Bay during the Obama administration as part of that swap for the deserter. Remember the deserter Bo Bergdahl? We shipped off some Taliban commanders in exchange for him. Well, now one of them is leading the charge in Afghanistan. Some real Obama-Biden smart power synergy going on here. Aren't you glad the adults are back in charge? It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show.
0: We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. This is something that I saw over the weekend and ended up writing about at townhall.com, and it absolutely falls under the rubric of woke tales. Woke tales. Woo. So, there's an organization called the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, it's a worldwide organization of doctors. Let me repeat the name of the organization, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Well, they are now urging that the term breastfeeding be done away with because it is not inclusive to describe the process known to everyone as breastfeeding. They want, quote, gender inclusive language such as chest feeding parents' milk, and human milk feeding. Quote, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I love that it's literally in their name, and they want it gone. This is how quickly things move. They are denouncing a term that's literally in their name. ABM recognizes that not all people who give birth and lactate identify as female. And some of these individuals identify as neither female nor male. The guidance comes after President Biden's administration used the phrase birthing people instead of mothers in a 2020 budget proposal. That's what they actually did, birthing people. This is not some internal email chain among the staff at Wesleyan. This is a budget proposal from the White House. Birthing people. It also comes on the heels of the American Medical Association, not some fly-by-night thing you've never heard of. The American Medical Association suggested that biological sex be banished from public birth records and birth certificates. Don't mark male or female on the birth certificate. Then we also have the CDC which you would think might have its hands full right now with the global pandemic. Considering all of the horribly botched and mixed messaging and other failures at the CDC over the last year and a half, you think they might be focused like a laser on that. Instead, in their guidance on vaccinations, they are referring to pregnant women as pregnant people. So I just ran through a whole list. We've got the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine saying we can't say breastfeeding anymore. Let's do chest feeding. We aren't going to talk about mothers or mother's milk. It's parents' milk, human milk. Mothers are birthing people. Pregnant women are pregnant people. And let's not put sex, biological sex, as a marking on public birth records. This is from medical groups, doctors, government. Again, it's not some minor fringe activist organization. This is from an elite level where they are trying to impose new speak on everyone. They are trying to change the basic understanding of words and language, change the meaning of words and language. And why? This is what bothers me. And this is obviously very much part and parcel with the whole woke excess train that is speeding down the tracks in a society that seems to be absolutely gripped with unimportant things while getting big important things wrong or ignoring them altogether. It's not a great place. We, we don't find ourselves in a great place right now, I would say. Now, I've said this before, and I feel like I will say it again probably many times, because these battles are just getting started. The powers that be, many of them, want us to completely change the way that we speak and think and talk about these issues. And they're doing it. I mean, it is happening in a blur. It is fast. I was actually reminded the other day, President Trump had a weird take on breastfeeding. I guess he hated breastfeeding. He thought it was gross and he said something about it. In 2018, it came under fire and you Google it and there's just a thousand news stories denouncing him for his position on breastfeeding. The denunciations had nothing to do with him using the term breastfeeding. They all used it. Because in 2018, and always, breastfeeding was just the term for the thing that is done by women and their babies, right? That's how they feed their babies, if they're going to lactate and feed them their own milk. It's just recently, it's like the last year, the last few months, where it seems like everyone at a certain elite, center-left level, they all just decided... We are going to enforce a sea change in how we communicate about all of these things. And it's all about trans people or non-binary people. As many of you know, I don't harp on it constantly, but it comes up. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. I think that we should be respectful and kind to all of our fellow human beings on matters of identity And just broadly speaking, right? The golden rule, do unto others. I think that is probably a pretty good one for us to abide by collectively. I think we can affirm the dignity of every life when someone makes a decision that they want to change their gender identity or they want to be called by certain pronouns or names. I think people in their lives can and should try to accommodate those wishes. Especially if we're talking about adults who've made decisions for themselves. Let's just be nice and polite. If someone wants to be called something, let's just do our best to make that happen, right? I don't think that that's much of a stretch. What I do have a problem with is the desire to uproot the English language and take long-standing, plain meanings of words, biological facts, dictionary definitions, and sort of out of nowhere, just pivot on a dime and say, we can't say these things anymore because it's offensive. It's not offensive. I tried to look up some data, and I found a study out of UCLA which estimated approximately 0.6% of the American population identifies as transgender. And there's some other percentage that identifies as non-binary, which is sort of a more nebulous category. But 0.6%. Let's say that trans men and trans women are divided equally. Right? It's 50-50. I don't know if that's true. But for the sake of argument, let's say it's about 50-50. That would be 0.3% of transgender identifying Americans would be potentially capable of being pregnant and giving birth. Meaning, someone who was born biologically female, who now identifies as male, there is some number of them in the country who even after treatments, or you're not really sure which surgeries they're electing to have or not, some percentage of male-identifying human beings in the United States, nevertheless, have a uterus, can get pregnant, can give birth, and can breastfeed. So let's say that's 0.3%. What percentage of those have had surgeries to the point where they could not go through that process anymore? Probably a significant number. How many of those who still could get pregnant and give birth would be so offended by terms like breastfeeding and mother or woman that it would become a problem where they would lash out at people around them for using it? I'd say even a smaller group within that smaller group within this already tiny group. Just again for the sake of argument, let's say it's 0.1% of the population population. That would fall into that category, and I think that might be an overestimate. We're changing the way that we talk and basic vocabulary about these matters, what, to accommodate 0.1% of us? What about the 99.9% who are not in that category? We can, on an individual basis, treat the 0.1 or 0.3, whatever number it is, percent, with dignity and respect and kindness, as I say. It does not require completely excavating all of our words and terms and known biological facts just to potentially avoid some offense or be more inclusive, supposedly. Because I'm not really sure it is more inclusive to completely re-engineer The way that we talk and the words that we use on this stuff in such a way that largely erases women and womanhood. The vast majority of people, the overwhelming 99.9% of all humans who get pregnant and give birth and feed their child from their breast milk because they have breasts are women who call themselves women and it is part of the identity that they have of being a woman. That's part of it culturally, scientifically, etc. So I think womanhood erasure is a very unfortunate and unnecessary thing. I don't believe that the imperative for kindness, empathy, dignity, affirmation, Requires this, and yet so many people at an elite level have just gone along with a brand new radical program where they are trying to shift the way Americans think and talk. And I think it's completely unreasonable. Chest feeding? Like if you run into one of the 0.1 percenters in my previous example, and they prefer for you to say I'm a parent, not a mother, I'm engaged in chest feeding, or what have you, fine. With that person, people can maybe tweak the way that they talk to not hurt that person's feelings. Reestablishing the entire language around this stuff for everyone is such an overreach. It's not inclusive. I think it is, in some ways, exclusive to exclude the vast majority of cases. And part of me also suspects a lot of this is just woke, lefty, progressive people projecting onto elements of the trans community language that they think the trans community wants. Now, there are some activists who are hardcore and insist on this stuff and they drive the bus and really pressure people when it comes to this. I think a lot of other folks just want to live and let live. And they don't need a bunch of woke people going around being the language police for every American about what we're allowed to say and not say. Like overnight, and the media fell right in line. I mean, you see tweets and headlines from the media, pregnant people. Pregnant women is a thing of the past. We're not supposed to say it. Pregnant people. These pregnant, birthing people have children whom they feed through chest feeding. And on and on it goes. Don't say mother. Don't say woman. This is ridiculous. It's insane. And it does not make you bigoted or transphobic to say that it is not hate speech or problematic to correctly use terms like women, breastfeeding, and mothers. But apparently the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, which I assume is in the process of changing all their business cards right now, is scraping that word off the building. They would disagree. The American Medical Association would disagree. The CDC would disagree. The Biden White House would disagree. And you wonder why some people don't trust the so-called experts and the establishment. They insist that they believe in science they bleeping love science, they say over and over again. Trust us. Why won't you bow to our expertise? And then they're out here trying to foist upon the rest of us the notion that mother, woman, breastfeeding, these things are offensive and insulting and have to be removed from our collective lexicon in this context. It's, it's nuts. This is why a lot of people won't believe anything they're told by experts. It's actually quite corrosive. But the woke brigades think that they are on the side of progress and the angels because self-righteousness is a huge part of woke tales.
1: Woke tales.
0: Back on the Guy Benson show with more after this.
2: Guy Benson will be right back from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
0: We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Just a quick coda to Woke Tales, which we just talked about. I saw, I think yesterday, yet another news story about the LGBTQIA+. I think I got them all. Flag being redesigned again to be even more inclusive. They keep changing this thing. Feels like every few weeks. At what point will just the old pride flag, just the rainbow flying that, when will that become a hate crime? Where's the giant triangle thing with the circle thing? It just keeps getting less and less aesthetically pleasing. And this was my point that I just touched on in the last segment. In a lot of ways, our elites in our society are focused, and there's an activist class that undergirds this, on extremely trivial things, right? Equality and rights are not trivial things. Whether the new pride flag adequately represents every little tiny subgroup is trivial. There was a tweet that I was reminded of. It resurfaced in my feed yesterday. It was a tweet from the United States Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. It was from June 2nd, this summer, two months ago. We're talking about weeks. The U.S. Embassy in Kabul tweeted a photo of the Pride flag recognizing Pride Month and the importance of respecting the dignity and equality of of LGBTI people around the world. This was the embassy in Kabul that put out that tweet. Fine. Oh, we are so committed to human rights, especially these human rights. Well, the U.S. Embassy Kabul, where they tweeted that pride flag photo, is now abandoned. The American flag has been taken down. And it seems like a matter of time before the Taliban flag goes up. And if you're an LGBT person in Afghanistan, God help you under the Taliban. Seems like the focus on an orderly withdrawal and protecting people who need help might have been a better use of our time at the U.S. embassy in Kabul than tweeting photos of pride flags. Considering what is transpiring literally weeks later. This goes to the crisis of seriousness that I keep thinking about. Are we a serious country anymore? And I ask that seriously. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Upcoming, Charles C.W. Cook joins us with his insights. Always look forward to chatting with Charles. He's straight ahead. It's our final hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson in New York City. beyond on Gutfeld tonight. Part of that panel looking forward to that. 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Here at the radio show, our website is guybensonshow.com. The podcast is free every single day on demand. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It's so good, especially when the weather is hot, which it has been relentlessly here in the Northeast for the last few weeks, it feels like. I guess it is August. Fair enough. Oh, there's a long drink for that. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you or where they are expanding. You can always order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. And just like yesterday, this happy hour today doesn't feel fully happy because it's impossible to turn on the news and have warm and fuzzy feelings frankly, about the United States of America right now in some ways. And the human suffering and fear playing out in Afghanistan with plans that they keep talking about at the White House that obviously were not executed in any sort of meaningful or orderly way such that this disaster was mitigated or prevented. Didn't happen. And the adults in the room keep insisting that we're the ones who are sort of misunderstanding this. Meanwhile, we can tell that to the thousands of Americans and tens of thousands of American allies who are currently unable to get to the airport and are stranded in a country now controlled by a terrorist organization. With me now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. Charles, I want to start with Afghanistan. Thanks for joining us. You have a piece out actually several pieces out in the last few days, one of which is the Democratic Party can't have it both ways on Afghanistan. Let's start there. What's your point?
5: My point is that there are a number of ways of looking at what's happened here that are coherent, uh, but the, the way in which Nancy Pelosi and Jen Psaki and Joe Biden are talking is not. For example, one could say, The United States has no great national interest in Afghanistan beyond protecting ourselves from terrorist attacks. So we don't care what happens. I mean, that is, in practice, our view toward North Korea. We know what happens there, but we don't think, and I think this is sensible, that it would be a good idea to invade. So we let it happen. We could say we are so concerned about the Taliban, which is a 7th century religious cult that oppresses women and homosexuals, that we're going to stay there and stop that happening to those human beings. What we can't do is leave like this, botch it in this way, and say that we're gonna do everything we can to defend the victims of the Taliban.
0: Because we literally are not. No,
5: we're not. And so it's absolutely bizarre when you read Nancy Pelosi putting out statements saying that she applauds the wisdom of this decision but also that she's very concerned, especially for women and girls, in Afghanistan. It doesn't mean anything. And I think you saw that absolute incoherence on display yesterday from Joe Biden. It was not just that he was pushing the blame onto President Trump and others. It was not just uh, that he rewrote history. It was that he simultaneously argued almost an America first, foreign policy position and said that the cornerstone of American foreign policy must be the protection of human rights. Well, it, it, it can't
0: be both. Right. And as soon as he said that, I made a note of it as I was watching and reacted in real time. As soon as the speech ended, that was one of the central incoherent contradictions where the president comes out. And in many ways, you're right. The speech was sort of America first, cold blooded, Dead behind the eyes. This is unfortunate. It was a long time coming. There are a lot of authors of this terrible story, but I'm putting an end to it because the American national interest is not being served there anymore. And I'm making a very tough call to rip off the Band-Aid, even though it's going to be painful, at least for a period of time. That would be as you say, at least sort of a coherent thought, and we could debate whether that's right, whether that's callous, whether that is an abandonment of some of our obligations, an abandonment on human rights. But within the same speech, he said that the tentpole of his foreign policy approach is human rights, although not through military might, but through diplomacy. And he said that within hours of the American embassy being evacuated and abandoned in a panic with our diplomatic corps being airlifted off to the airport to be flown out of the country. I mean, I I don't understand how a president or a team around a president could craft a speech in a moment like this with the scenes playing out the way they are and make the case that he did, that cold-blooded case, and also try to congratulate himself and pat himself on the back on his commitment to human rights. It's not compatible, Charles.
5: It's not compatible at all. Uh, he does not have a coherent foreign policy. Right? He never has. I mean, Joe Biden is impressively wrong about everything when it comes to foreign policy. John Sullivan once told me that you will never find anyone in the world who is correct about everything. So what you should do is find the people who are wrong about everything and do the opposite from them. And if you want to do that on foreign policy, you need look no further than Joe Biden. I mean, he has a 40 year record, more even, of being wrong about everything. Okay. And he was wrong about this. And I think the most galling part of his speech yesterday was that he failed to engage with the substance of the criticism against him, which is that he has botched this exit. It is not that we should stay in Afghanistan forever. People of all political persuasions, of all foreign policy views, of all opinions on Afghanistan have clubbed together here to say, President Biden messed this up. This was a disastrous way of getting out. The timing was bad, the planning was bad, all of his predictions were wrong. And yet he said, well, what do you want me to do? Stay there forever so we have rows of gravestones in perpetuity? No, but you don't have to believe that we should be staying in Afghanistan in large numbers to accept that it was a bad idea to pull out the military before we would got our citizens out, before we would got our military hardware out, before we would got the Afghan interpreters and the people who've helped us for 20 years out, before we'd secured the prison in which we've been putting some of the most dangerous people in the world that we fought to imprison for 20 years. You know, th- this is not a question now of whether we should stay or whether we should go. It's a question about how it was done, and how it was done was disastrously.
0: Earlier at the White House, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, he briefed, the president is not talking to the press. He didn't take any questions yesterday. I think we know why. I think it would have gone extremely badly. Sullivan is doing his best up there, but it's not nearly good enough. And one of the things that he keeps saying, and that the White House keeps saying is, well, we plan for every contingency. And I just I can't imagine I cannot fathom why they would keep saying that, because if that is true, it makes them look worse, because if they plan for this contingency, what evidence is there that they had any actual actions in place to deal with this contingency? We're seeing just the opposite. I mean, it seems like a pretty brazen lie or an admission of astounding incompetence. It's, it's one well, or the and, other. And
5: in the speech yesterday, he said back to back, it was separated by one sentence. We planned for every contingency, and the truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. Well, then you didn't plan for every contingency, did you? And so something else we ought to address here is his rewriting of history, because there was an attempt yesterday to cast this as President Trump's fault. Now, I don't think President Trump is blameless, and I don't think President Trump's approach was necessarily positive. But I do know that whatever plan President Trump put in place had already been superseded by Joe Biden. Joe Biden came in and he made an announcement in April that we would be pulling out of Afghanistan at the end of August. He said that he had inherited a plan to leave by May 1st, but that would be changed. He said over and over again, that this was his decision. He said, I have taken this decision. I've taken it with clear eyes. Uh, He said, uh, I said we would be out by September and we're on track to meet that target. He changed the plan. He wasn't bound by President Trump's agreement. This wasn't a congressional act. It wasn't a constitutional mandate. Uh, And he's proven himself quite capable of reversing deals made by President Trump. For example, he has reversed the reversal of the Iran deal, and he's reversed the reversal of the Paris Accord. Uh, This was not President Trump's fault, at least not outside of any fault that lies at the feet of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and President Trump during their tenure. Joe Biden is the president, and it was up to him to orchestrate this plan. Well, and, and, and the,
0: thing, the thing, Charles, that's amazing is they say we plan for every contingency. And it was yesterday during a press conference they asked one of the generals, how can you be sure that American military assets, materials, weapons won't fall into the hands of the Taliban more so than that has already occurred? It, what's the plan to prevent that? And the general said, I don't have an answer. That question. We saw today at the press conference, the national security advisor saying we are working very hard. I'm paraphrasing. We're working very hard to figure out how to get thousands of Americans trapped in Afghanistan, not at the airport to get to the airport. We're sort of counting on the Taliban's good graces to allow us to (laughs) do that. I mean, if this was the plan that they had for every contingency. Again, I'll make the point. What an unbelievably damning indictment of their capacity for planning. It's basically, they might as well put, hang a sign behind them saying, we are absolute embarrassing incompetence.
5: Yes. And I think the blame has to lay squarely at Joe Biden's feet. You know, one of the things you occasionally hear hawkish people say is, the president overruled his generals. How outrageous. It's not outrageous. In America, we have civilian control of the military. And we should have that. That's one of the cornerstones of a free society. So if the president, who is elected and is imbued by the Constitution with certain powers as commander-in-chief, if he disagrees with his generals, it's fine. He can say so. He should say so. In fact, he's constitutionally obliged to say so. And it turns out Joe Biden said so. Joe Biden was told over and over again by his generals, that His plan was flawed. He was told by the intelligence community too, And he said, no, I'm going for it anyway. Which, by the way, just to
0: interject, far. just to interject, that also puts the lie to the notion that, oh, this was just very unexpected. We couldn't have seen this coming. We planned for every Absolutely. contingency, but we couldn't have seen this coming. It's all a jumble of incoherence. And the intelligence community and the military are now telling every reporter who will listen in Washington, D.C., of course they knew this was possible. We told them our intelligence was shifting, and they insisted on moving forward anyway. Again, that's his prerogative. But as you say, Charles, and this is an important point, ultimately the responsibility lies with him. All the deflections aside, it comes to the president. However, whenever President Trump would do something especially outrageous or harmful, there would be calls for resignations from his detractors targeted at top staff saying if you don't want to be complicit in this if you're disgusted by this don't talk to Bob Woodward off the record until it's in his next book do something now and we did see some resignations some of them very high profile over the course of time have we seen any calls for that because the president's not going to resign he thinks he's done a great thing as he told us yesterday but there were people whose opinion he overruled and now we're seeing the consequences. I mean, it doesn't look like the Secretary of State, or the Secretary of Defense, or the National Security Advisor, or anyone else has any serious qualms about what they're doing. But I feel like maybe some of them should have qualms.
5: Well, I have to say, I, I would consider it somewhat unjust in this case if any of the senior officials were to resign, in that this was not an example of a high-ranking, perhaps even Senate-confirmed figure, botching a good instruction at the execution phase from the president. The opposite happened. The high-ranking officials warned the president, and the president did it anyway. Now, that is his prerogative, but he has to own that. And to turn around and say, you know, as as a journalist asked yesterday, well, General Austin, (laughs) will you resign? You can see a scenario in which the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State should resign. Donald Rumsfeld resigned in 2006. But that was because Rumsfeld was at odds with the president, and Rumsfeld had in the eyes of the president failed to execute his will. But in this case, the president was telling members of his own executive branch, over which he has control, this is what we're going to do. Now, I don't expect Joe Biden to resign, but if someone has to resign over this, it should be the president. I don't don't
0: disagree with the point you're making. I just think he's not going to resign because he's very proud of himself. He's casting this decision as the height of wisdom, uh, which is sort of amazing. But that's the tack that he's taken. And Charles, I guess my point is, if there were to be high profile resignations so far, there have been none. Maybe there won't be any. It wouldn't be because they did anything wrong. It would be resignations out of protest. For what they are now attached to based on the decisions of the person that they're serving under whom they no longer wish to serve. We'll see if anyone has that pang of conscience and decides to do that or not. But I feel like the the ugliness of this is sadly just getting started and a lot of us are watching and I actually wonder how many Americans are going to want to continue to look at this unfold because uh, to call it unpleasant is an understatement. Charles C.W. Cook. Senior writer National Review. Charles, we always enjoy having you on. Not a happy subject today, but we hope to have you on again soon because I had three other topics to get to with you that we didn't get to, including <laughs> Florida and COVID, masks, etc. So let's just take a rain check on those.
5: All right. Well, thank you very much.
0: Charles Cook on The Guy Benson Show, which returns
5: after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
0: We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here and listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So there's some audio from last night of Chris Cuomo over at CNN. He was back on the air. He was addressing the Andrew Cuomo thing, very self-serving, trying to spin it. If we have time tomorrow, because the news cycle is just insane. If we have time tomorrow, we might get to some of that audio. The journalistic ethics, I think, are extremely questionable. And the way that he's framing this is not supportable by the facts, I would say. I have seen on the Andrew Cuomo front an interesting point being raised yesterday and today Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who is still the governor of New York, has not yet signed his name to a resignation letter, which would make it official. And some people are saying, why hasn't he done that yet? I can't imagine he would unresign. I mean, he's shameless, but I don't think he's that shameless. But keep an eye on that. As of this morning, there was still no resignation letter formally from the governor of New York. You wonder if it's a leverage play on some level with the state legislature dropping the impeachment probe and then reinstating it after a firestorm. So that drama may feel over, but it may not quite be over yet. We're watching it here. It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
0: Guy Benson Show happy hour here on this Tuesday from New York. Catch me on Gutfeld tonight. Earlier in the program, our first hour, we had Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, a combat veteran, a wounded warrior. We got his thoughts on Afghanistan and more. Here's part of my discussion with Congressman Crenshaw. That is what they're telling American citizens. But they're telling us from the press conference, you know, from from the podium, we have all these contingencies uh, plan for it, it. It makes no sense. It's insulting.
3: No, they, they have they have no contingencies whatsoever. And you really have a good point about the about their denial of the intel that they had. And uh, you're seeing more and more reports coming out from the intelligence community that look, Biden and his advisors were told what would happen, that Taliban would take over. And I think I think the, the agreed upon estimates were between two months and six months. And it ended up between you know two days was was the actual answer. But in any case, it was obvious what would happen. It was obvious what your actions would cause. And, and, and the fact that, that there's no adults in the room, the fact that these people thought that that outcome would somehow be superior to the, the previous status quo is absolutely insane. And, and I've been saying this over and over again. We were captured. Our foreign policy was captured by emotional slogans of bring the troops home. We got to stop. You know that that is derived from a, a, a sense of wishful thinking, right? People who people who have been advocating for that they want to live in a reality that doesn't
0: exist, and that's both parties by the way,
3: hundred percent. And they want to live in a reality that doesn't exist, where where you can have your cake and eat it too, where you can have zero troop presence, but also have security and peace of mind and a denial of a terror safe haven. They'll even make silly things up, like, well, we'll just do these sort of long term or, or, or long range missions and surgical inserts, you know, to Keep them at bay. I'm sorry, that's not how the military works. It's impossible, especially in a land country. You need to be forward deployed. And again, we had a minimal force there. You know, as Americans, we and again, both parties did this. Everybody equated nation building with a residual security force. And these two things are not the same. I think I think most Americans agree that nation building in a place like Afghanistan is is a waste of blood and treasure. But we did find a balance in the last few years, an equilibrium that both kept Americans safe at home, kept terrorism at bay and didn't cost us a whole lot. Well, and you said that there
0: were and just to highlight something that you said, you said there have been no U.S. combat casualties in Afghanistan for the last year and a half, which I think is probably surprising to a lot of Americans who hear the phrase like forever war and assume that we have tens of thousands of men and women over there significant numbers of whom are dying on a regular basis that was horrifically the case for a long time but more recently that equilibrium that you described was preventing that but also preventing a terrorist organization from taking over the country and now there's all this jihadist chatter about using Afghanistan as a base for terrorism again it's like we've seen this movie before congressman and it ended horrifically for the United States of America one piece of this I want to ask you about because There's the question of whether or not we should have withdrawn completely, and there are different sides to that debate. Uh, A lot of Americans were on the yes side of that. You were more on the no side of that for the reasons that you've just laid out. Then there's the issue of how to withdraw once the decision has been made. This is where I I don't think you can possibly deny the abject failure of the Biden administration. It's, It's just been... Stunning. It's been stunning to watch. And one element of it that I've never understood, not that I'm an expert on these matters at all, but it was last month that we handed off a Bagram Air Base to a military that clearly collapsed when they didn't have some of the support that we had been giving them for a long time. It seems like a single airport and a single runway is becoming this huge focal point as we are desperately, in a panicked way, trying to get people out of the country. Among many other things that could have been done differently, why the hell wouldn't you maintain an airbase for the purpose of evacuation if it came to that, if you were indeed? you know, uh, operating with all these contingency plans in place. Instead, they just turned the keys over in the dead of night last month.
3: Yeah, and there's a lot of impact there. I mean, the reason why fundamentally is because they were relying on bumper sticker slogans for their policy.
0: My full interview with Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also on the free podcast, the full show, every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, the ongoing wages of a failed anti work policy hitting close to home, plus lunacy from the Australian government. That's coming up.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch here on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. So, twice now in the last, what, four days, this issue has reared its head again. And I know there's a lot that we're discussing on Afghanistan, on COVID and the Delta variant, vaccines. It's just like drinking from a fire hose. Often, they say that July and especially August are the doldrums of summer. Congress is on recess. That hasn't really been the case, right? This is coming at us at a thousand miles an hour every day. There's no slow news day anymore or slow news month. August has been hot, news-wise and just physically. The point of that is, not that long ago, we were talking quite a lot about, remember the $2 trillion bill that the Democrats passed all by themselves? No Republican votes. They said it was COVID relief. That's what they called it. It was Biden's first big achievement as president. Signed it into law, the Recovery Act, or whatever they called it. They put it under the banner of COVID, but we pointed out so much of it was wasteful. So much of it had nothing to do with COVID. So much of it was spending down into the future well beyond 2021 or even 2022. And then there were provisions in it that we talked about that we thought would prolong economic hardship, right? There were benefits given to unemployed people that were so generous, these extra Federal benefits on top of the existing structure layered atop, right? These were supplemental federal benefits for the unemployed. And the argument was made by a lot of Republicans and conservatives before this bill was passed. If you do this, many people are going to come to the conclusion that they can make more money not working. They will be deliberately, strategically unemployed because they can make either more than their income or roughly equivalent to their income, or even a fair amount of their income by just hanging out and doing other things and not actually working. It was a very perverse disincentive away from work. And of course, that warning fell on deaf ears. The Democrats didn't care. In some ways, it was a feature, not a bug. More dependency on the government is a good thing in a lot of their minds. Not all of them, but to a lot of people in the progressive left... They love government dependency. They want more of it. Conservatives, we want less of it. And so that argument wasn't necessarily persuasive to them. They waved it off. That's not really going to be a problem. And yet we've seen what has happened. The number of job openings, a separate layer of an economic crisis that has held back our recovery, is the fact that a lot of people are staying on the sidelines, not seeking work. And the data bears it out. Thank goodness a bunch of Republican governors reversed the policy in their states. Of course, they were attacked for it. Look at these heartless, non-compassionate people. No, getting people back to work is what's compassionate and sustainable. But because this became a partisan issue, even with Democrats admitting that there was a problem, admitting that there was labor shortage issues in their states, many of them don't want to touch it. Because it's a democratic policy signed by the democratic president, and it's just tribalism. So I believe the benefits, the supplemental benefits, finally start to expire in September. I think they go into September. Adam's parents are out in Colorado, Blue State, and they have a friend who opened a restaurant That is now only able to operate five days a week because they can't find enough people to work there. They can't staff the place seven days a week. So they're doing five days a week. And the problem with that from a business perspective, and keep in mind, any of these small businesses that are still operational managed to survive COVID. Where you had businesses shut down or massively scaled back by government edict. Right, they were able to get through that, and now they're facing this new government-caused problem, which is the shortage of workers. And in this case, that restaurant out in Colorado, their break-even is on day six for the week. Profit, I know some people view profit as bad and evil. Profit is, in fact, the whole goal. It's what makes the whole system work. Profit is day seven. So because they're only able to operate five days a week due to the labor shortage, they are operating at a loss and have been doing so for a while and will continue to do so until the blue state supplemental benefits expire and people need to work again. So they are just hoping that they can cling on until then. Now, that's just an anecdote. It's not data, although it supports the data, right? Right. It's an illustration of the data. In our backyard, in our neck of the woods, one of our favorite mom-and-pop restaurants in our neighborhood, same thing. They were operating seven days a week. They had to cut it back to six days a week. And now they've just closed for a second day as well. They are now closed Mondays and Tuesdays. They are only operating five days a week because they can't get people to work. This is a business that clawed barely through Covid, And now they can't even operate seven days a week, not because they're doing anything wrong, but because the government has made, and this is in a blue area, blue state, the governor's made it policy that people are in a better position to sit home and not work than to show up and allow these businesses to function. So those are two very different parts of the country under Democratic governors, under a Democrat passed law that are experiencing exactly the same thing. And guess what? They've got a plan tentatively to reopen seven days a week. It's circled on their calendar as soon as these benefits expire, which is not a coincidence. There's a direct link, right? You can connect the dots very easily. This past weekend, I was down at the lake. We mentioned this, the lake with Mary Catherine Hamm and her family. We went to a restaurant for lunch one day, and they had signs everywhere saying, We understand our service is slow. The food might take a while. We are sorry. We can't get people to work. Please be kind to our staff and those who have shown up for work. Please be patient. And one of their signs said, the labor shortage is a new pandemic. These are not cherry-picked examples. Scenes like that and realities like that are playing out across the country. Still, and there are some businesses that might not be able to survive it. And I know some folks just shrug and say, oh, well, if they'd only paid their workers more, we need a higher minimum wage. Like all of their solutions to the problems that they cause would actually make the problem worse. Oh, no, it's not true. They're the experts. They've got it all figured out. They've got everything planned, just like they have in Afghanistan. Right? They just exude confidence. The competence emanates off of them. Meanwhile, at least these businesses are not bars or restaurants trying to operate in Australia. This is a government official making a new announcement, an update to their policy on COVID. Their lockdowns are crazy. In parts of Australia, they have law enforcement out there arresting people for leaving their homes. They've had a very low COVID rate. But they've been very slow on vaccines. And the government has taken a hardcore line, maybe not as crazy as New Zealand, where they just went into another lockdown over one case, one. Like, just the risk assessment, it boggles my mind. It almost gives me a new appreciation for the benevolence of people like Muriel Bowser, right? I would somehow take. The hypocrisy and overreach of Muriel Bowser than live like that in New Zealand, but of course we live in the land of the free, and none of this is acceptable. But listen to this: we are. This is a real soundbite from a press conference from a government apparatchik down under explaining another thing that Australians aren't allowed to do.
5: There will be no removal of masks to consume alcohol outdoors. So you will no longer be able to remove your mask, to drink a cocktail uh, at a pop-up beer garden on a footpath uh, as part of a pub crawl.
0: So you can't take your mask off. I believe this was in New South Wales. You can't take your mask off to drink an alcoholic beverage outside. And I guess they'll have the police there ready, handcuffs in hand. If you really rebel against the government and have a beer outdoors with your mask hanging off of your ear, that's not allowed. So people were making jokes. I saw memes on the internet of like people getting waterboarded with alcohol in Australia where they're still technically wearing cloth over their face. They're trying to pour the booze into the mouth regardless. I mean, I saw the clip and... It, it feels like it's satire, but that's their reality down there. And you still get this sort of petty tyranny in parts of the United States as well, right? It seems like we're sort of much farther along on vaccination than they are, but there was total insanity like this happening in the U.S. Maybe not quite this extreme. So I am glad. I love the Aussies. I love visiting Australia. We have family down there. I Often wish I were there. Not right now. This does not seem healthy or good or fun. It seems like logic is out the window. Science, what does this have to do with science? We've known for well over a year that being outside is one of the safest places you can be. If you're on a trail with a beer outside and you're sipping it, that is a z- virtually a zero risk situation. And yet here's the government down there saying you may not. The second thought I had, beyond how insane and anti science this was when I saw the clip, was how would producer Christine survive in Australia? Or would you just become a civil rights leader? Would you engage in civil disobedience? Just take me to jail. But then there'd be no booze at all. That's
2: true. And also, um, the way you said how that they're saying, no, you may not,
0: that's not how they're saying it. They're saying, oi, mate, no, you cannot drink out here. That was an abomination that they don't say oi. That was a combination of a terrible British accent with a hint of South African at the very end. You wanted me to talk about this just so you could flex your horrible accent and drive me crazy. Isn't that what just happened?
2: I've been practicing in the, in the you studio. Baited me,
0: you baited me into this so you could do that, knowing that it's bad, not caring that it's bad, and in fact, relishing the fact that I was going to hate it.
2: Come
0: on, make just a little fun nope, here. No. Nope. nope, 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 It's We still have like 20 seconds left, but let's just start the music now and let's make sure her microphone is off. We are not going to subject any of our listeners to that anymore, especially and my apologies go out. The Guy Benson Show would like to apologize to our listeners in Australia, South Africa, England, really the whole realm, the whole realm of the crown. If you were offended by what you just heard, please forgive us. Her impression does not reflect the views and values of the host of this show. Ugh. What you should have said is good eye because we're out of time. There nope, you. nope, nope, wrong country still. The microphone was supposed to be off. See you on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Back here tomorrow from New York, it's the Guy Benson Show.
2: Listen to be part of the conversation with me,
4: Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at
2: Briankililmeadhow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring common ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his All-Star panel and much more. Available now at Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.